Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about laws of motion and what brings it all together. I want to hit the idea of the arts again, this time focusing primarily on poetry, but I want to bring the arts and the sciences just a little bit closer together. I want to talk a little bit about the things that we know and the things that as a human race, we're continually learning and how that scientific knowledge informs the arts. But before I do, I want to begin this episode right off with The Different Drummer. It seems only right for me to pick up with a discussion of Salvador Dali as a different drummer, as close as possible to the conversation about Luis Buñuel. After all, the two men collaborated together on one of my favorite movies, uh, the 1929 silent film An Andalusian Dog, and one of my favorite paintings by Salvador Dali is a portrait of Luis Buñuel that he did when they were, uh, I guess, at university together, it appears. So... All along, in the early part of the Surrealist movement, it was pretty clear that Luis Buñuel was potentially a filmmaker, certainly a person with uh, ideas, with the ability to write them as well, and that Salvador Dali was going to be a visual artist. Uh, from painting, to sculpture, to elaborate pranks, to the ideas, the dreamlike ideas that would provide the setup, not just for Luis Buñuel's work, but later on for the uh, dream sequence in Hitchcock's Spellbound, that this was going to be a person with a visual idea. So I'm going to talk a little bit on a personal level about what for me makes Dali a different drummer. But first, to bring in the idea that the man has credibility when it comes to politics, sex, and religion. And then later, a little bit about science. First off, uh, one of the things we think least about Dali is Dali being a political force. He uh, had a very, perhaps, immature understanding of, of political issues and the way world politics functioned. My opinion is that a misunderstanding or an inadequate understanding of American politics led to the falling out between Dali and Bunuel, a uh, falling out that ultimately led Bunuel to realize he could no longer work in the United States of America and had to relocate to Mexico if he was serious about being a filmmaker. However, it's not that uh, you have to be well-informed or have a great vision to incorporate politics into your art. I offer is only one example, the painting called The Geopoliticus Child Watching the Birth of the New Man, which may or may not have been Dali's effort to criticize or to at least poke, poke the balloon of optimism surrounding the, uh, the New World Order, not the New World Order we're dealing with today, but the New World Order that uh, you saw after World War II. So politics was not beyond his frame of reference, and on occasion you would see uh, images of Freud and images of others, which would be an indication not only that he was tapping into psychoanalysis and dream interpretation, but that he also was perhaps making statements about some of the, the religious, cultural, and political issues of his day. From a religion perspective, he has done one of what I think is one of the, the more creative and innovative crucifixion paintings. He also has uh, studies on the Madonna and often depicted his future wife in poses that would very much uh, be a reference to the Roman Catholic notion of the Madonna 
So not above uh, not above religious overtly religious imagery. The crucifixion scene I'm referring to is a painting called Christ of Saint John on the Cross. However, I tend to think most people probably understand Dali more from the perspective of his sexual imagery. That, you know, to be honest with you, most of the artists that we would refer to as greats include nudes somewhere in their repertoire. But Dali was often one who would use them in, in unique and interesting ways, sometimes making surrealist statements and sometimes um, just making overtly sexual statements with them. One of the ones that jump out at me, and it's something that until you've seen the painting in person, I don't think you'd necessarily grasp it, is um, the hallucinogenic Toreador. There are several semi-nude figures within that painting, and some of those figures make up the face of the bullfighter himself. But the thing about the hallucinogenic Toreador that jumps out at me is when I first saw it for the first time in person. If you're living in the United States of America, in fact, if you're an American who's planning to visit Disney World or has, for any other reason, a sporting event or a conference, a reason to be in the Tampa Bay or St. Petersburg area, you have the opportunity to see actual Dali paintings in person. One of the museums, one of the two museums in the world that hosts most of the work of Salvador Dali is right there near the uh, Gulf of Mexico in the United States of America. And one of the things you find when you go into that particular museum, by the way, I've been there twice and it's a fantastic museum experience. Um, one of the things you find is you turn a corner near the end of what you might you know, take as the tourist flow, the direction you would go through if you kind of followed the gallery as, it laid, as it's laid out, is that the paintings for the discovery of America and the hallucinogenic Toreador, those two in particular, are gigantic they were more than one story high. It wasn't simply that he had a canvas that was as big as the room that he was in. He had a canvas that was bigger than one floor of his home. And to see that kind of detail in a painting that big in person on the actual canvas you know, on which it was painted is a, is a breathtaking thing to see. And what you see in the detail of the painting in person is so much greater than any photograph could ever try to reproduce. You know, even if you saw a documentary about Salvador Dali and you saw Dali's work on a huge IMAX screen, I don't believe that there's any substitute for seeing the real thing. The last time we went there, we saw his portrait of Lincoln, which again, for my mind, you've got to see the painting in person and you've got to see the painting in person in an enormous room or at least a very large setting so you can get not just close enough to it, but sufficiently far away from it that you can see both the parallel images that Dali was creating. In one case, he's creating a picture of his wife staring through a window of an elaborately tiled room. And from the other perspective, it is what we might consider to be one of the classic photographs of Abraham Lincoln. It's, it's simply amazing. And although you can recreate that effect by doing a lot of squinting or by covering part of your eyes or by looking at a book from a great distance, there's nothing quite like the real thing. So did I become very impressed with Dali's work and decide to make him a different drummer because I visited the museum? No. Truthfully, I was already impressed by his work, and it was that impression that led me to go to the museum. I have a couple of paintings uh, on my wall, and clearly, although I didn't mention a, a great painter uh, in the show about art and the strange bedfellows, I, I mainly focused on photography when it came to what we would call you know, the two-dimensional visual arts. I did refer to a, a, a painting of, of Christ last time. This time what I'm looking at are two paintings from Dali, uh, prints, reproductions. One of them is The Persistence of Memory, 
perhaps most famously known for the melting clocks creating a landscape and ants in the foreground walk, uh, you know, kind of crawling over the front of a, of a pocket watch. And the other one, the disintegration of the persistence of memory. These two pieces, in this case, it's virtually the same landscape, but the landscape is having somewhat of a cubist disintegration in the foreground. And in the background, you can see some, you know, some dead fish and some trees that have become segmented and yet, and yet still maintaining their stature. To me, these two paintings give a view of concepts of time, which we're going to come to uh, on a future show in terms of my relationship with time. But because I have such a unique relationship with time, I really have a great affection for both the persistence and the disintegration. Um, these paintings speak to me, despite the fact that they're not necessarily telling um, what we might consider to be an overt story. A lot of paintings that you see, you can almost walk right into them not the paintings of Salvador Dali. These are paintings that you, you, there's an emotional distance there because the images tend to be so surreal, tend to be so abstract. Some of them filled with what we might even call elements of Dadaist humor. But beyond any doubt, Salvador Dali made paintings that he intended to generate a response. He wanted people to think. He would not have been the least bit happy if people walking in a gallery filled with his art went from one painting to the other saying nothing more profound than wow, that was really beautiful. Instead, I think he would quite like the experience that people get in the museums, both in Europe and in America, displaying his work, where people would come away from one room to the other, one painting to the other, saying, I don't understand what he's doing here, or I don't understand why he did that, or even at times, I don't understand how he did that. In the case of his portrait of Lincoln, it's definitely a matter of me not fully understanding how he did that. I stop well short of calling Dali any sort of genius. From the perspective of painting, he's unquestionably a gifted artist. Even if you see his works and find them to be totally unpalatable, there's absolutely no question that there's talent there. Incredible talent. But I would defer the concept of genius toward the ideas that he picked up from other people and chose to leverage or depict in his paintings. People like uh, people with challenging ideas like Sigmund Freud and people with challenging ideas about time and the nature of time. It is in these aspects where it's not inappropriate to mention Salvador Dali as a different drummer, especially if the focus of the topic is art and art from somebody who at least wanted to engage the science of his time, the best science available, whether that be uh, dreams, the interpretation of dreams, the psychology or the psychopathology of man or whether it be to simply raise questions about memory and how memory works. Salvador Dali is our different drummer for this week. We miss huge opportunities to make meaningful connections when we separate science from art. We also miss opportunities when we separate science from people and ideas. When we separate science from daily living, either by placing science on a pedestal or religion behind what we might call a holy of holies up in some shrine somewhere. Those two concepts in particular end up becoming a false either or in many decisions, including some decisions we take for granted. Culturally, we fail to recognize the implications and possibilities that certain scientific theories present to us. I'm going to read one of my poems here in a little bit called Laws of Motion and uh, talk a little bit about how I apply those laws to relationships. But it's enough to say as a, as a starting point 
that something more profound than physics is represented by Sir Isaac Newton's work. As if physics wasn't profound enough, there's more going on there. In fact, when I get done, we may question whether I should have used Newton as a different drummer for this particular show, but let's hang on to him for another day. First, the laws of motion themselves. I'm going to go just a little bit toward the science extreme, read these to you, and then I'm going to deal much more on the artistic side the rest of the way. At least that's my plan. Laws of motion number one. Every object in a state of uniform motion tends to remain in that state of motion unless an external force is applied to it. Number two. The relationship between an object's mass, m, its acceleration, a, and the applied force, f, is f equals m times a. Acceleration and force are vectors. In this law, the direction of the force vector is the same as the direction of the acceleration vector. And perhaps the most widely known, number three, for every action, there is an inverse and opposite reaction. These are the laws of motion. There's absolutely no indication that Newton expected or wanted these laws of motion to be applied so narrowly that they wouldn't function outside of the realm of physics. So I'm going to take them outside the realm of physics. And to start, I'm going to do by reading a poem that I wrote yeah, a few years ago, five or six years ago, that I simply called Laws of Motion. He is never going to change, is he? We've always done it that way around here. It is what it is. Predictable. What did you expect? If you examine all the causes and effects beforehand, you could predict the future. Bet on it. The odds are with you. He is never going to change. To make any headway, you've got to hit the ground running. Charge forward. Work harder. Work smarter. Direct the committee to create a subcommittee. The task force will recommend throwing dollars at the problem. Or hours. Top priority as in now. The wrong answer today will always win over the right answer at any other time. <sighs> what goes around comes around. Prepare yourself for a backlash. At the moment I say the words, I want to swallow them back in my throat. Yet, when I'm silent, I can't hear my thoughts over the shouting. Consequences. Do we still believe in consequences? No matter. They still believe in us. Nerd Hurdles, the podcast that encourages you to dork in, nerd on, and geek out. I'm Jacob. And I'm Mandy. We talk about stuff that's too nerdy for people to like. Sometimes we drift off topic. We have to actually be on topic to drift off it. You make a good point. Nerd Hurdles. Hello, 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 Cowgirl Records podcast. It's music. Uh, it's like a, it's like a radio it's station. It's like a mixtape. It's like a mixtape. And everybody knows that mixtapes mean I love you. That's right. So it's like someone saying I love you to you once a week. Tony Pucci specifically. Tony Pucci specifically. The Pollyanna Cowgirl Records podcast now available at simplysyndicated.com. I would say that it's a little bit unfair for me to have a poem of my own that I've read to you just the one time, where you don't have any ability to see the way it's laid out on the page, don't see even the breaks between the stanzas, to necessarily pick up where it goes from one law of motion to the other. And I apologize for that. I don't intend to read it again, though. I think that 
The beauty of podcasts are that if you want to hear something like that read twice, you always have control over um, when a show starts and stops or at any point in time where you pick up where a show you know, has a particular piece of content to it. What I will do, however, is talk just a little bit about the three stanzas and the fact that the three stanzas are intentionally divided up into laws of motion. So there's the, the uh, section starting with he is never going to change, is he? The first law of motion. It ends with, well, a confirmation, a correlative statement saying, yeah, he is never going to change. The second stanza begins with, to make any headway, you've got to hit the ground running. And it ends with uh, the philosophical concept that the wrong answer today will always win over the right answer at any other time. That is the second law of motion. And the third law of motion, the final stanza, begins with, what goes around comes around, and ends with, do we still believe in consequences? No matter, they still believe in us. It's in this regard that I'm dealing with the ideas of inertia, with the ideas of force and acceleration, and with the ideas of, of inverse reaction. You know, for every action, there's an inverse and opposite reaction. The idea there is that you know, when you hear people say things, when you think about interpersonal relationships, and the question I guess in my mind is, am I wrong to suggest that Newton's laws of motion apply not just to ideas like gravity and the way um, celestial bodies move through space, but more have to do with interpersonal relationships, or at least function just as well as an interpretation of interpersonal relationships. And I think so. I think so because when you hear somebody say something, when you're in a restaurant and in the table next to you, two women are speaking louder than they mean to, and you're listening perhaps more than you should, and you overhear one say to the other, you know, he's never going to change, is he? That's inertia at play. That is inertia saying that a body at rest is going to stay in rest until something forces it into motion. Or that a body in motion is going to remain in motion until something forces it to stop. Now, in Newton's case, that was the concept that you know, gravity will bring things to a stop. That friction will bring things to a stop. But in this case, there's just as much gravity in that interpersonal relationship. And there's just as much friction in the relationship between the woman and the man she's speaking of. That you can begin to see how interpersonal relationships apply to this notion of the laws of motion. You know, if you really want something done, the more passionately you feel about it, well, then you better, you better attack that thing with the right amount of force. You better try to get the acceleration you want on something by applying the right amount of force in the correct direction. These are the ideas that you see here in these first two laws of motion. And who among us has not had that situation where you say the wrong thing at the wrong time, that you speak beyond your own beliefs and express something that doesn't truly represent how you feel, and along the way perhaps you hurt somebody's feelings. Or perhaps you find an ally you didn't want as an ally, you know, that you weren't intending to express a racist point of view, but you did make a distinction on a political question that made someone who is a racist think you agree with them. We've all had these kind of things happen in our life, where Newton's third law of motion is perhaps the most dominant thing happening in, inside your head, where you say, oh my goodness, that is not what I meant to happen. I, I pushed too much forcefully in one direction, and the consequences have come back to me in, in the other way, that my, my energy in pushing an issue away from me has pushed me in the direction I didn't want to go in. And I think we all experience these things on an everyday basis. Too often, we are too good at segregating ideas to say that, well, this is chemistry, therefore... Um, Biological theories, not welcome. 
or when you get into the idea of, well, it's a biochemistry class, therefore it's going to be really hard because it's combining two disciplines together. Or, uh, you know, the, you know, is there a divide that we maintain in our head between physics and geology where those two disciplines certainly have a connection? Um, are we maybe too strict in our understanding of botany that we don't allow things in botany to inform things in the, zoolog the zoological world or the other way around? It's not just that inside the realms of science, sometimes we've got a specialization, certainly the specialization that you see in medicines, that doesn't always serve us well, where the notion of, you know, of we've turned the general practitioner from a doctor's perspective into a little more than a gatekeeper toward a different set of specialists who um, can't speak to the core issue because they're only there to look at this one specific area. I would take this notion I've got that the laws of motion apply to more than just our understanding of time and space and physics, and that it impacts our everyday life and the real world in which we live in. I would take that further to say that it has application in the arts as well. You can see that from time to time, perhaps in the paintings of Salvador Dali, or in the human experiments represented by some of the best and frankly worst films of Eric Romer. It's out there, and I think that we need to be a little bit more open to it and to be more embracing of it. Each one of the stanzas in this particular poem starts with a quotation. The first line of each poem is in quotation marks. And whether those quotation marks reflect the overheard nature of it, like I described in the very first idea, that uh, he is never going to change, is he? Or whether it rep represents something that, from a, like a second-person perspective, instead of something you're overhearing, but something that someone's saying directly to you, Something like, to make any headway, you've got to hit the ground running. Or perhaps more of a first-person idea, where what's being said is in your own head. It's part of your own internal dialogue. What goes around comes around. So that's kind of the idea that I had, that in some ways, we not only have these laws of motion that we understand from the physical realm, that impact the way we interact with others, whether we know it or not, that affect our relationships, but they also affect our relationships on three fronts. Now notice what I'm doing. I'm taking us from the hard science of Newton's physics into the art of poetry and trying to explain that from the perspective of my belief that the laws of motion apply to interpersonal human relations as well. But now I'm about to overlay on top of that a grammatical concept. And when you think about grammar, grammar is in some ways kind of the science side of literature because each one of these three laws applies in what we might call all of the persons of, of literature. First person meaning the internal dialogue, what I tell myself, I'm telling the story, it's me. Second person, which is the you need to do this, you need to do that kind of approach. Or a third person, where somebody who's perhaps not connected to the behavior, who's outside the action, is describing what's going on, either from the perspective of being an omniscient narrator who already knows everything, or perhaps nothing more than an eavesdropper, a very fallible, very uh, temporary narrator, who, who not only doesn't have all the facts, may not have anywhere near enough of the facts. All of these laws of motion apply there as well, too. Now, I said um, early on, and I'll keep saying it as long as I'm doing these shows, I'm a believer in cause and effect. And part of the reason that I'm a believer in cause and effect is that I think that that concept applies equally, whether you're dealing with ideas of science or religion or politics or you know family life or the way you do your job at work, or the way you interact with others, these laws of motion apply as well. And as someone who has very recently made some strong statements of faith, 
Let me end this concept with one more statement of faith from the laws of motion. I still believe in consequences. I believe in consequences because denying their existence doesn't deny their impact. Hi there, this is Stu Perry saying check out $10 Fist on musicalmousemat.com. How can you turn down a band that were dubbed murderers of music? Thank you for listening to this inappropriate conversation about the laws of motion and where I see the mixture coming between you know, science and art and the way we live our life and the dreams and aspirations we may have and the techniques that we use for navigating through this world and how it all rolls up into one big ball, whether sometimes we're even aware of it or not. If you've got some ideas or thoughts you'd like to push into this conversation, if you've got a different idea, if you think perhaps I should have left some things at rest instead of forcing them into motion, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com, and the website is inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.